I was probably 12 when I first found my body's owner's manual. It was in a bookshelf in a back room of the house, stuffed between my mom's old college textbooks. I didn't know it was my body's owner's manual. It only piqued my interest because, well, there were pictures of naked people in it. Ooh. So, of course, reading it felt like I was doing something forbidden. But while I'd seen my fair share of the body diagrams in the Encyclopedia Britannica, also forbidden in my mind, these naked bodies were different. They were weird. They were real. And the book included descriptions of stuff that no adult had ever explained to me. Now, don't get me wrong. My parents were really comfortable laying out the basics of sex and bodies to my siblings and me. But not stuff like this. Not masturbation and birth control methods and what a normal vulva is supposed to look like. By now, you might have guessed that the owner's manual I'm talking about is called Our Bodies, Ourselves. And while this book has been handed down from mothers to daughters for generations, it's not a medical textbook. It's literally a feminist collectivist zine that went big time. Seriously. It got its start as a stapled together bundle of mimeographed newsprint written by the attendees of a women's liberation conference in 1970. It had sold a quarter of a million copies by the time it was printed by a commercial publisher three years later. It got updates and revisions every few years and sold millions of copies in dozens of languages until the Boston nonprofit behind the book stopped publishing it in 2018. But as helpful as it's been to women over the decades, the book isn't built on a lot of scientific evidence. It's more a compilation of passed down wisdom and homespun research. It's gotten better over time, but its latest editions still make some really weird recommendations, like suggesting you can cure yeast infections by putting garlic in your vagina. But there's a reason a book like this is the one that women flock to. It's because for most of human history, there's been close to zero good information about women's bodies and how they work. That's finally starting to change. Today, we're going to find out why it's taken so long and what we know now that we didn't before. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask. Why is it that we know so little about women's anatomy? 
Well, the easy answer is because it's generally been men doing the discovering and they've gotten a lot wrong. I'm Rachel E. Gross. I'm a science journalist and I'm writing a book on the history of your lady parts. I think that you could look at it in a more nuanced way and say there's been a lot of cultural assumptions baked into our research on the female body. So if you think about the NIH, it wasn't until 1993 that we included women in clinical trials. And until then, they basically said a woman is two thirds of a man, she's a little man. And they basically just did the calculation for correct drug dosing and all sorts of other biological research. And obviously a woman is not two thirds of a man, but I think you can trace that assumption back going so far. Going back to the Greeks, many Greek physicians said that women were basically like men, but inferior and inverted. And that was how they described their genitalia. And these problems continue today. I think one problem is that we lack the language to talk in a precise way about some of the plumbing that we have. When we say vagina, we're often talking about the vulva, which is just like the outer part of all the female genitalia. It includes the inner and outer labia, the clitoris, everything that you can see, pubic hair. And we just say vagina if we say it at all. So it's really hard to get a handle on what's going on down there. Yeah, yeah, okay. This episode is named Vaginas, and that's not technically accurate for what we're talking about. I mean, to be fair, neither is vulvas. But, you know, female reproductive system is not a catchy name for a podcast episode, so I gave you the old bait and switch. Deal with it. Anyway, we were talking about why this stuff is hard to talk about. I would say that we're kind of taught to feel a lot of shame about that part of the body rather than to explore our own sexuality and anatomy. And again, that goes way back. So Hippocrates, the famous Greek doctor, he used a name for the entire female situation and he called it tuatawan, excuse my Greek. It meant the parts for which you should be ashamed or the shame parts. And that's not just limited to his time. Um, you still see the word pedendum in a lot of medical textbooks. That means parts for which you should be ashamed. I had no idea. Oh my gosh. The more you know. Yeah, right. To Adewan, as Rachel said, meaning the shame parts, comes from Eidos, the goddess of shame and modesty. Which, okay, at least it comes from a goddess. But again, like Rachel said, pedendum, the word that people still use, all the time as technical terminology for women's genitals, it's literally the Latin word for thing to be ashamed of. It's a straight line. No fancy etymology here. But those are just some of the truly fascinating names that are lurking in our lady parts. Because just like they have with animal species, physical laws, and genetic diseases, scientists have stamped their own names all over the organs they've discovered which puts us in this weird situation where many parts of women's reproductive systems are named after men. So everyone's heard of the fallopian tubes. They're named after Gabrielle Fallopio. But 
the more I looked into the system, the more I found there were more and more of what they call like eponymous names. So they're probably in the anatomy textbooks and you and I might not know them or we might not recognize them, but basically any anatomist who quote unquote discovered something gets his name slapped on it. So there's the graphene follicle and that is the egg that is ovulated each month if a woman's having her period. That's named after Rainier de Graaf who like postulated that women have eggs. There's the pouch of Douglas, which I believe is in a comedy routine now, and it's a cul-de-sac between the vagina and the anus. And this British anatomist named it after himself, or it was named after him. Um, and like, I didn't know I had that in my body. Right. Um, you feel kind of weird. Wait, wait, a cul-de-sac. Wait, explain that more. I don't understand. <laughs> it's like a dead end. Like, um, think about your pelvis, how there's like some empty space there. So like, uh -huh organs there's some empty space that ends in a dead end <laughs> oh so he just named he named the empty space after him yeah yeah exactly the negative space <laughs> by the way i looked up the comedy routine about the pouch of douglas it's by hannah gadsby who is a gem and i can't believe i hadn't seen it before click the citation link in the show notes and give it a watch another organ i had no idea was named after a man well a god more accurately is the hymen you know, that membrane that covers the vaginal opening that supposedly breaks the first time the vagina is penetrated, but in actuality, most hymens start out with holes in them and can stretch open more from totally normal non-sexual activity, and that's all before you learn that some people are born with just half of one or even no hymen at all? Yeah, well, that membrane is named after the god of marriage. The god of marriage. Thanks. I hate it. But as far as our lack of knowledge about lady parts, I can hear the objections already. It's because women have all of their organs hidden inside their bodies, while men just have them hanging out there. Women's reproductive systems are literally more mysterious than men's are. That is exactly what I believed at first when I started looking into this. And it's what a lot of biologists told me was that women are just, they're more obscure and mysterious because everything takes place inside and it's not easy to see and men kind of just hang out there and it's kind of just like obvious. I believe that less and less the more I've done research on this. We have a lot of pretty sophisticated imaging techniques that can look at the womb. We have a lot of other scientific techniques for looking at what's going on there. I would say we do have the technology. It's more a lack of sometimes interest, sometimes funding, and sometimes we're held back by that very assumption that you just said, that this is a fundamentally mysterious process and that women are just harder to understand than men. And so we'll never understand it as well. OK, but aren't women harder to understand than men because they've got all those hormones? Like, it's just easier to study men. So it makes sense to do most of our research on them and then just transfer that knowledge to women, right? So I think that's what's really interesting is if you're saying that it's too messy to follow women because they have these hormonal cycles that are complex, then you're admitting that a woman is not two thirds of a man. You're saying that she has some biological differences that are going to be important to her health and her biology. And so therefore, we need to study those and not just make these easy shortcuts and assumptions. But I will say that there has been research into that assumption, and it's actually been found to be false, that women are not more like variable in these clinical trials than men. This double standard 
that women are basically small men, so we don't need to study them as a group, but also they're so wildly unpredictable that we can't study them as a group. It's so ingrained that it even extends into animal research. A 2009 survey found that male lab animals outnumber females by up to five to one in some research areas. But the assumption that female animals are too hard to study because of their hormone cycles was just that, an assumption. That is, until 2014, when a team of scientists performed a meta-analysis of nearly 300 neuroscience studies that used mice as research subjects. After measuring the mice's physiological, cellular, hormonal, and behavioral traits over time, the scientists found that the female animals were no more variable than the males. They concluded that studies can include female mice without tracking their cycles, though it may be even better to track the hormones of every animal, regardless of sex. But science's mistakes when it comes to women they go way, way back through the history of science and medicine, a history that was pretty much dominated by men. One of the people I bring up a lot is Andreas Vesalius. He is known as the father of anatomy. He was an Italian anatomist in the 16th century, and he basically cut open a ton of corpses, like thousands of corpses. And he said, we're no longer going to listen to the ancient physicians that I've mentioned. They didn't really look at human bodies because there were a lot of cultural taboos then. So we're going to do it from scratch. And we're going to only say what the eye can see and what we actually can experience. So he was known as like a very objective observer. However, as far as we know, he dissected very, very few women a couple that died in childbirth, maybe, out of his thousands of dissections. And that might have something to do with the fact that he never found the clitoris. He insisted that women had no clitoris and that only women who were diseased or otherwise malformed um, had, or hermaphrodites had a clitoris because it was basically part of male anatomy. The clitoris is a structure that is homologous to the penis. It gets an erection. It's made of the same erectile tissues and it has a similar makeup inside. So he argued with other anatomists at that time, including one named Raldo Colombo, who said the clitoris is a thing and it's a beautiful thing. And if you are nice to it, then it will shake sperm from it just like a penis. And he wrote this beautiful poetry praising the clitoris, and he wanted to call it Amor Veneris, the love of Venus, that didn't win out clearly. But there was basically a clitoral catfight among all these anatomists. So Vesalius got that very wrong. He also, for somebody who had these beautiful illustrations of human anatomy and really like contributed to a lot of progress, if you look at his images of the uterus, they're shockingly wrong. When you first look at it, you think it's a penis. Everyone does. It looks like a hairy penis with like the top cut off and the ovaries are made to look like testicles. And that's no mistake. That goes all the way back to those Greek ideas I was talking about, about women being inverted men. So the uterus was considered an inside out penis. And again, this is the guy that was actually cutting people up. So he should know. And it brings up this idea of like, you don't know what you're not looking for and you can't see what you're not looking for. By the way, you can check out that weird penis uterus image on the citations page for this episode. Just click the link in the show notes. Anyway, even those few dissections of pregnant women were problematic. My immediate thought 
when you said dissecting women who died in childbirth is that all of that equipment kind of looks different when you're pregnant, right? So did that give a really distorted view of female anatomy too? Yeah. And that was another bias that they had and that I would argue we still have very strongly, which is that if you're looking at a woman, what makes her a woman is the womb. And what makes a womb important is that it holds a child. So almost all the illustrations in his big book, Corpus Fabrica, anytime you see a womb, it has a baby in it generally. And that makes you a woman, that you have a baby in your womb, that your womb is occupied. And so, yeah, that would skew what they thought of as normal anatomy. And it means that they're looking at a very specific biological process rather than what's happening during all the other years of a woman's life that she's not pregnant. I think a lot of people are surprised by how small the uterus is, right? I mean, how, how big is it? Yeah, yeah. I was super surprised. I did some shadowing on the birth and delivery ward at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, and I saw some uteruses. It's like a small pear, very tight, but it can grow like more than 10 times its size, like like many, many more times its size. Um, it can stretch massively to incorporate a fetus and then it goes back to its normal shape within months so it was shocking to me it is a remarkable organ pretty much the only one that regularly sheds itself every month in this intricate process coordinated by hormones and then recreates itself within a period of like nine days, including making new blood vessels, and then sheds that again every month to prepare for a theoretical embryo. And so it's very dynamic. It is all very regenerative and self-healing. And these are some of the qualities that are really interesting to bioengineers. One such bioengineer is Linda G. Griffith at the MIT Center for Gynopathology Research. Despite the fact that the uterus actually regenerates itself on a monthly basis, most bioengineers hadn't considered taking a closer look at it, including Linda Griffith, until she had to. She had endometriosis, a condition in which a uterine tissue or something like it grows in other places in the pelvis where it shouldn't. And it can be extremely debilitating, both extremely painful, and it can actually fuse your pelvic organs together because this tissue is sticky and it spreads. And so she dealt with this for so long and it took her more than a decade to get a diagnosis. She realized that nothing was changing and that so many women were suffering from this and that nothing was going to change unless she kind of used her tools to investigate what was happening and figure out how the disease develops and eventually test treatments. There's, there's no cure currently. There's a few tools for dealing with it, but they're very imperfect. So she ended up dedicating her career to creating a center for gynepathology at MIT. And now she is working on this in the lab, making this tissue and observing it. So she bioengineers pieces of tissue that react to hormones the same way. So you can actually see how the uterine lining grows and you can see how diseases take hold there. Another organ in a woman's reproductive arsenal that's experienced its own scientific breakthroughs recently is the clitoris. But it had a rocky start. It took a long time for men of science to admit that the clitoris is even real, much less that if it's properly stimulated, it can lead to orgasm. 
But even then, it's not the right kind of orgasm. If you ask famous psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud. So his most infamous, to me, theory is that of the vaginal orgasm. And he came up with this process by which to become a mature woman, you must transfer your orgasm from your clitoris to your vagina. And he actually described it as the clitoris is like pine shavings that like transfer the flame to the actual fire, which is the vagina. And this is like throughout his writings, he has so much to say on the clitoris, but he knows so little about the actual anatomy or like worse, he knows the anatomy since he was trained in medicine and he's choosing to adapt it to his theories just in order to create the basis of psychoanalysis. So basically he never explains how, he calls female sexuality like a dark continent and says it's the most confusing thing in all of psychoanalysis to him. And he famously asks, what does a woman want? But he also insists that this is how it works. And this is like immensely harmful because first of all, that's biologically impossible to transfer your orgasm. Second of all, it starts with the assumption that your clitoris and your vagina aren't connected. Your clitoris has these internal bulbs that wrap around the vagina. The vagina is more of like the muscular tube that is made of different tissues and travels from like the vulva to the uterus, but they're, they're intertwined, right? And like it's been shown since him by sexuality researchers like Masters and Johnson that there's one type of orgasm. It always involves the clitoris. It depends how your body's configured. You might get clitoral stimulation through vaginal penetration and more likely you're going to need direct clitoral stimulation in many ways. So for him to make it so one type of orgasm was inferior and pathological, just complicated <laughs> and added even more layers of shame to women's sexual lives, which nobody needs, especially not then. And he just made generations of women feel inadequate and broken and like they were alone and not being able to feel this important, mature female sensation. And by the way, uh, you probably already guessed this, but the reason why a vaginal orgasm is superior and mature is because it can lead to a baby. And that is kind of a woman's full role. That bit about the clitoris having those wraparound bulbs, that is something we only discovered fairly recently. And I'll be honest, when I first saw a diagram of the entire clitoral structure, it blew my freaking mind. We didn't know like the extent of the clitoris until pretty recently. People did uncover that knowledge, but it either didn't stay in the culture um, or wasn't like passed on or wasn't thought important enough to follow up on. So actually there are some beautiful German drawings in the 1800s that are like sketches of an internal clitoris that were done from dissection. and. They're very detailed. So the shape of the clitoris is people usually refer to it as kind of a pyramid of erectile tissue, but you've got like the nub that you can see and that we usually refer to as the clitoris that is external. And then you have two wings that reach back and then two bulbs as well. And the wings and the bulbs are both made of erectile tissue and it's the exact same as that in the penis. So there are 
columns in the penis of erectile tissue, whereas in the clitoris, you've got bulbs and I'm saying wings, but they're kind of like tendons that pull back. So I like to think of it as like burrito and taco, same materials, different configuration, (laughs) exact same. Uh, So the importance of having like those deep erectile tissues is that you're getting stimulation from those as well as the head of the clitoris. So it's important to know that those are surrounding the vagina and in different women, they're in different like depths and shallowness and like slightly, there's a lot of variation with sexual anatomy. I'm about to go on a weird tangent, so stay with me. This kind of makes me think of barbell squats. Not that I use my clitoris in the weight room, although some people do. Google corgasm and thank me later. But that variations in anatomy lead to variations in weightlifting form, just like they do with orgasm form, I guess. Like, if you look at weightlifting forums, you'll see two types of people. People who insist that you must squat in exactly this way every time, and people who recognize that different lifters have different femur lengths. And as a result, there's no one squat form that's right for everybody. But because of that first group of people, there are lifters who try and try and try to squat in the way they've been told to squat. And it doesn't work with their body shape and they hurt themselves. Humans have variations that we adapt to in all sorts of ways. There are makeup tutorials for different types of eyes, running shoes for different types of feet, food for people who need different diets. But somehow women's orgasms are supposed to be one size fits all. And when a woman can't have an orgasm that way, the conclusion is not that her body is built for a different method of orgasm. It's that she's doing it wrong. It's BS. All right, tangent over. It's kind of understandable that we only knew about the tip of the old clitoral iceberg for so long because, well, you can't really see the rest of it inside of a dead person. Part of it's the way that we dissect. We, I mean... We dissect dead people, thank God. And this is a tissue that's meant to be erect. It's porous, and so it fills with blood and it swells and it grows quite a lot. So you're not getting a real sense of the size if you're just looking at dead tissue. So the recent part was a urologist actually in Australia um, named Helen O'Connell decided to do MRI images of living aroused women and compare them to microdissection back in around 1990. And some of her research was done a bit later than that, but that was really shocking to people. And it showed that the volume of the clitoris was like 10 times what most people thought. And I would say it's because no one bothered to look like she did. We didn't have those imaging techniques, you know, a decade earlier. so. Part of it is that you can only use the technology you have at the time, but also, again, like nobody bothered to explore this part of the anatomy but her. And she was motivated to do it because she was a urologist and she was doing a lot of surgeries at the hospital. And she realized that for men, if you do prostate surgery, you're really careful to spare important nerves that have to do with sexual functioning. Whereas in women, we didn't know where any of those nerves were. We didn't have a map. And so she was really concerned that she was cutting important nerves and that this could be really harmful. And so we needed to understand this anatomy, which goes back to your question about like how little we know about the female anatomy is kind of shocking. It might surprise you that we're even learning more about the vagina itself. I mean, you'd think that of all the mysterious lady parts out there, it'd be the least mysterious. 
No, the vagina's mystery involves a fairly new field of study that's been leading to new discoveries in the health of our skin, mouths, digestive system, even brains. It's the microbiome. What I think is interesting about the vagina is that it's kind of this liminal space between you and not you. So it's like the opening to the body. I mean, like your mouth, like any other orifice. But because of that, it has to have a lot of protection. It has to protect against diseases. It has to have its own army, essentially. So it's a mucous membrane. So it's got some mucus. But it also has this teeming microbiome of bacteria. And this is also a really new aspect of female anatomy that we're looking into. It's really in the past 10 years that we've looked at the vaginal microbiome. What is a healthy vaginal microbiome um, across cultures? And can we replicate it? So I don't know if you've heard of lactobacillus. This is kind of the keystone species of the vagina. And I like love to think of it as kind of a forest ecosystem. So lactobacillus is pretty similar to what you find in yogurt and cheese. It creates an acidic environment and it keeps the pH very low in the vagina. And that means that other types of bacteria can't get in and they can't thrive there. So the idea is that lactobacillus keeps the vagina inhospitable to the bad guys. And that's what we've known, but the story is getting a lot more complicated because there are many different types of lactobacillus and there are actually many women who are perfectly healthy but have different types of bacteria or more diversity of bacteria. So they're investigating kind of what role these different species play and if we can manipulate that to create more protection and to stop women from getting a lot of bacterial infections, including STDs. I personally love the idea that there's this whole, you can think of like war metaphors or just like a delicately balanced ecosystem down there. I think it makes some people uncomfortable because the idea of like bugs in the vagina uh, makes people think that it's very dirty. And again, this is a part of the body with a history of shame and dirtiness uh, attached to it. I don't have any interest in furthering that, but there's a lot more going on that meets the eye. <laughs> Okay, we've talked uteruses, clitorises, vaginas, hymens, fallopian tubes. What about the ovaries? We actually didn't even have the word ovaries until the 1600s, I believe. They were just called female testes. And that goes back to multiple assumptions, one of which being that women produce sperm or seed. And so that the ovaries produce sperm just like the testes do. So they didn't even have their own name, basically. And what's interesting there to me is that there's some truth to the idea that they're like female testes because these are the homologous parts, just like the clitoris and the penis. And when we talk about female and male body, like in some ways that's totally a convention and a box we're putting on it because we have quite a lot of the same processes and materials going on. We've just decided to make women something that is more reproductive and more about the uterus and focus on a lot of the differences. However, ovaries don't make sperm, they do make eggs. And it took quite a lot of time to figure out that humans made eggs. It was in the 1800s that we finally saw the human egg and realized that that was an important part of fertilization and conception. Until then, it was sometimes thought that you had two types of seed and sometimes thought that the female only provided the soil and that the male provided the life force. But also, 
I think that we often think of ovaries as the egg baskets, that their main purpose is to make eggs. And that's what we think about. We think of like preserving fertility, preserving ovaries um, or cancer of the ovaries. But they also have a really important second purpose, which is to create hormones that cycle throughout the body and have effects way beyond the reproductive system. So estrogen, progesterone, and a few others, they contribute to bone density, heart health, and these other like systemic processes. So I think thinking of the female as just reproductive really obscures these other really important things that quote unquote reproductive organs are doing for us and other reasons that you want to have good reproductive health besides having a baby. One thing I've always, always like known about ovaries is that they only make eggs once before you're born. Every baby born with ovaries is born with all the eggs they'll ever have, which honestly feels like a weird thing to think about babies, right? But the good news is, that it might not actually be true. Maybe. Actually, there has been research that has become extremely controversial that finds that women have ovarian stem cells that create new eggs throughout their lifetime, including up into their you know 40s, 50s even. And again, it is super controversial, but it is a fact that fruit flies and mice, females, do produce new eggs throughout their lifetime. So if you just think about it logically, why would humans not, especially if you accumulate more genetic mutations and issues as eggs age? There is definitely some logic to that. I'm not a biologist, so I can't tell you how that debate is going to end. But I can tell you that the other people in this field are extremely outraged and get very emotional over this very idea. So the idea that women could produce new eggs is extremely alarming to a lot of scientists. And that just strikes me as interesting because I don't see scientists get riled up about a lot of topics. I am just as amazed at how little we know about the female body as I am at how much new stuff we're discovering at this very moment. And according to Rachel, the more we discover, the more it becomes apparent that humans on the whole are more alike than different. Framing this book was a challenge because we're looking at the female body, but like the deeper I get into this research, the less I am convinced that the female body is its own entity. And as I mentioned before, the more I'm convinced that there are so many more parallels and likenesses between all bodies that are more interesting to pursue. Like I talk about women and females a lot, but it's often in the historical sense because medicine has seen the quote unquote female body as this like different, inferior and reproductive thing. And so I'm looking at the cultural history of what woman has meant in science. And often it's been like a territory to be conquered or some unruly beast to be tamed or mastered basically. But I, I don't know, I've struggled with this because what I hope the book will reveal, especially by the end, is that human bodies are more alike than they are different and that focusing on the things that are biologically unique but also the same creates knowledge that helps everyone and like I want people to think outside that's what I want to get them to do by the end and show them that this is more of a, a construct and a convenient way of separating bodies. 
Okay, that might seem like it conflicts with the idea that women aren't just small men. I mean, if we're more alike than different, and women on average are smaller than men, women are small men. Case closed, right? Obviously, no. I'm saying that, like, there's a lot to be gained from studying the female body, and yet we also need to be careful not to make the female body a cage that separates women out into this own, like, silo. All right, I'm going to do it again, but it's like Honeycrisp apples are related to Red Delicious apples, right? They've got a lot of things in common. But calling a Honeycrisp apple a bigger, differently colored version of a Red Delicious apple wouldn't be entirely accurate. They're each their own variety, with their own genetic quirks and growing requirements. But it also wouldn't be very smart to treat Honeycrisp apples as an entirely different species to Red Delicious apples and ignore everything we know about how Red Delicious apples grow and thrive, because that's helpful to Honeycrisp apples too. That's because, again, they're related. You can treat them as individuals and as points on a spectrum, depending on what you're trying to do. Same goes with the sexes. A famous Freud line is, biology is destiny. And that's been taken to mean that your different biology dooms you to a certain fate and a certain role in life, including like your social role as a woman. And I would say biology is not destiny, anatomy is not destiny, but that's not to say it doesn't matter and doesn't have a lot to teach us. And to me, I find it pretty empowering to learn about so many of these like dynamic qualities going on inside my body that I had no idea were happening and how hard my body is working to take care of me and the ability to make a baby. Like, even though I often discount that just because I think the emphasis has been on fertility for so long, like it is completely remarkable and has a lot to teach us. So yeah, there are some unique things happening in what we call female bodies that have not gotten enough attention and are shockingly not well understood. And they should be with the caveat that biology can always be used politically against people and has been historically against gay people and trans people. So we don't want to start attributing people's core identities to their biology. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lopatka of DLC Music. Big thanks to Rachel Gross for taking the time to talk to me and providing a bunch of resources for the show notes. Go take a look at them. The working title of her book on the history of the female reproductive system is Lady Anatomy. It's due out sometime in 2022. For updates, you can check Rachel's website at rachelegross.com or follow her on Twitter at Rachel E. Gross. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're not an Apple person, a great up-and-coming podcast review platform to check out is Podchaser. You can follow your favorite shows and even individual hosts and guests. You can review whole shows or individual episodes. It's pretty great. I really like it, and nobody's telling me to say this. I'll link to it in the show notes. Anyway, that's it. On the next episode, we're going to be talking the science of infidelity. See you then.